Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Code Breaker, presented by Underdog Fantasy. There's a lot of drama in our world today, and a lot of really sick-in-the-head people out there, including in this audience, and today's show is for you, the most hardcore fantasy gamers, the ones who will do anything to win on the margins. This episode will primarily be a conversation with Neil Gupta, one of our two summer analytics interns at Roto Underworld, where we break down in great detail exactly how you can win on the margins in best ball and redraft leagues for the 2021 season. You won't want to miss any of it, and it was legitimately the most fun I've had recording a show in quite some time. I learned more than a few things during my conversation with Neil too. He's a sharp guy who thinks about strategy and fantasy football differently than anyone else I know. You hear that? That was the big dog. You've been requesting it, and Underdog Fantasy delivered. There is now the big dog, a $250 entry tournament for all of you high-stakes sickos out there that want to put some real money up there to the test. The big dog, small field tournament, high-stakes. It's what many of you have been looking for, and it's here. Go to your Underdog app, open it up. And you should see not just the Best Ball Mania tournament, but you should see the Big Dog tournament as well. And if you haven't signed up yet and joined Underdog, promo code UNDERWORLD. That's right, promo code UNDERWORLD. Deposit $25, get $25 back. Use that money if you want as kind of an early contribution towards your Big Dog entry. Turn it into two Best Ball Mania entries since that's $25. Put it into, that could be $10. Five dollar drafts. If you just want to get drafting and get those reps in, promo code Underworld. Also, we have a new product on PlayerProfiler.com. Data Analysis Plus. Are you interested in knowing for the 2020 season which wide receivers were out on the field for every single snap, where they lined up, which cornerbacks were covering them? Was it man or zone coverage? How many how many yards of cushion were between the wide receiver and the cornerback? Did a running back run a route on that specific play? Was it a different play? Was the tight end running a route? How much target separation did the targeted receiver have? Was the cor- was the cornerback burned on the route? Was there a big hit on the play? The list goes on. We have merged play-by-play data with all of the data points that our game charters meticulously keep track of during each game. And now you can download that and more. Data Analysis Plus check it out on playerprofiler.com. We have some medical injury reports that are now up so you can look and see exactly 
how many weeks players are missing, what type of injury they have, where on the body it was, how many injury reports compared to actual games missed they had. We also have advanced game log data, so we take the play-by-play -play data for you that you can also have access to and download, and we're going to roll it up to the game level. That way, if you're not as interested in actual play-by-play -play and you just say, hey, give me an advanced game log, I want to know for DeAndre Hopkins, how many routes did he run week four against man coverage? You now have that information at the tip of your fingers. Data Analysis Plus, check it out. As always, you're listening to Codebreaker. I'm Josh Larkey, the Director of Analytics at Roto Underworld and PlayerProfiler.com. And you can find me on Twitter at JLarkeyTweets, J-L-A-R-K-Y Tweets. But more importantly, you can find Neil. Neil Gupta is on Twitter at Neil2112, N-E-E-L-2112 on Twitter. Now, let's just get right into it. Give me 10 seconds to get my man Neil on the line and get those heads bouncing in anticipation. All right, everyone. I'm here with our summer analytics intern, Neil Gupta. And let me tell you, we had nearly 100 people applying for this internship and only two, Neil and Michael, that made it to the end and have officially been summer interns. And I know you might be thinking, why? Why? Josh, think of all the fish in the sea. Why would you have the intern on out of all people? And let me tell you, if you have any ignorant thoughts like that arising by the end of this podcast, <laughs> I assure you those will be put to bed and buried deep in the ground because the conversation that you're about to hear between Neil and I, I am so excited for it. We have an incredible show sheet with some really complex information that we're going to break down and simplify for the people and help you understand not only how you yourself can understand the theory, but how do you actually apply it to your drafts when you're in the, when you're on the clock? How are you actually supposed to think about player A versus player B? We're going to cover all of that for you today. Neil, talk to me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Josh. How are you? Thanks for the thanks for the great intro. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I I didn't mean any of that. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> so I think just to get people a little more familiar with who Neil is, what are you studying in school right now? And what, what year in school are you? And where, where do you go to school? Yeah, so I attend Swarthmore College. It's like a small liberal arts college right outside Philadelphia. I'm entering my senior year in September. I'm coming off the internship. And I'm in the honors program there, which means I look at two subjects like pretty in-depth. Um, I'm majoring in English and I'm minoring in math and computer science. So the way the honors program works is that at the end of my senior year, I'm going to have these oral exams from professors from like across the country come in and ask me about like my concentrations in English, math, and CS. So it's, it's a challenging program, but it definitely exposes me to a lot of like really cool opportunities um, and a lot of cool material. So let's use your math minor for a minute here. Estimate how, how many people out there, what percent of college students have the English math computer science triumvirate? That cannot be common. And that's one thing that actually really drew me to you during our interview process was I felt like I noticed all three of those components come out in the two interviews that we had together. 
I think generally there's like a lot of societal forces when you're at a young age that kind of pushes you towards, are you a STEM person? Are you a humanities person? And it's kind of arbitrary and I don't think it's really necessary. So I I suspect there's not that many people who kind of are in the cross division um, space, but I think it's important and it shouldn't be like that. I like to hear it. On the other end of this line, you have the econ major math and psychology double minor. So I don't think I turned out very well, but it shows that you're able to get some type of job later in life when you have the the mix of the humanities and the STEM classes. I think it's a great combo. So what, what made you apply for the internship and how did you find the Roto Underworld podcast network? I'm, I don't suspect that there were flyers being handed out on the first day of school when you show up at Swarthmore. They go, hey, in case you like fantasy football, Roto Underworld, how'd you find us? Yeah, so I got really into fantasy football about five years ago in high school. I play a lot of strategy games normally, and me and my friends were huge football fans. So we got into fantasy football as a logical extension of that. And once I got really into it, I'm the type of person who gets like really obsessive about things I'm into. So I'm scouring the internet for all types of resources. And Player Profiler is one of the best online resources out there for like looking at players. It's such a unique resource. And through that, I found the Roto Underworld radio. And I was really drawn to it because of the analytics band to the podcast, how deep each episode was, even in like dark times, like the summer when there's no football around <laughs> and, 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 and the humor. So yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been listening to the podcast for probably two, two years now. Now let's move right into game theory because we're going to talk a lot of game theory in today's episode. When did you get your start with being exposed to the concept of kind of critically thinking about thinking in some ways and how to use that in a strategic sense? Yeah. So I've taken a, like I mentioned, I play a lot of strategy games and I've taken a few game theory classes. These type of experiences have really supported my approach to fantasy football, where I really pay attention to stuff like the incentive structure of your league, your your expected payoff, the probabilities, um, and the types of, and your expected value. And like, these are the, I guess, more like academic ideas that structure the way I think about fantasy football um, and, and how I want to approach the way I draft, the way I pick up players, the type of players I take. Players that increase my probability of winning and increase my expected value, not necessarily the players who score the most fantasy points. So we've talked before about how early on in a draft, you have to be very focused. You have to know exactly who you're taking and start to plan out within the first few rounds. You want to have some general sense of your build. Then in the middle rounds, especially if I'm in a a best ball tournament, like best ball mania on underdog, and I'm putting in 150 entries, I'm maxing out the tournament. I actually, I don't call, I kind of call it going on autopilot where sometimes in those middle rounds, I go, you know what? I need another quarterback on this team. I need another running back. I need another receiver or tight end. This guy fell around after ADP. I'm just going to take him to diversify my portfolio and that I already have my build in mind at that point. Maybe it's trending towards a a zero RB-ish build and it might be a two, two quarterback, six running back, eight wide receiver, two tight end build. But that in those middle rounds, I mean, I'm not a big T.Y. Hilton guy. He's old. I don't think he's anything like he used to be. But if I see a T.Y. Hilton fall, around or around and a half after ADP. I might just autopilot it and say, you know what? This is not the player I like. I'm just going to take him to diversify. But you can't really do that in the later rounds. Talk to me about why it's important to be super intentional in the final rounds of drafts. So in the final rounds of draft, you're really drafting players who round out your roster in a way that they actually contribute to winning. You really want to be intentional with these picks because these players, you're not expecting that they're going to grace your lineup that often. Best ball or redraft, right? These are the bottom tier players 
you're not drafting them just for your expected fantasy points. Remember, like when you draft a player, the floor is always not zero points, but the waiver wire replacement and redraft or that like the, the lowest starting player in your, on your own team. You want upside is so much more important than the downside, especially at the later end of the draft. So when you get to these lower expected fantasy points per game, you need to be taking players that have the potential to slot into your starting lineup on a consistent basis rather than just scoring six, seven points instead of four or five points. So that actually leads into uh, a question that I get asked a ton on Twitter. I get DMs all the time. They'll say, hey, Josh, I, I looked at your projections. I looked at your rankings and I saw player X is ranked ahead of player Y due to projections. And please explain that to me. What What's your take on this where... How how can I go to bed at night as an analytics person knowing that my rankings and my projections are not always going to be identical? Yeah, so projection rankings shouldn't be identical because the projection is just giving one number. That's all you're putting in your projections. It's your expected fantasy points over the course of the season. But each player has a different level of ambigu- ambiguity associated with them. So they have a different range of outcomes. And some players who might have a lower expected fantasy points over the course of the season have more upside which is why you really want to prioritize that because in a fantasy football league where money is usually only paid out to maybe the top one, top two, or in a tournament where the chances are even lower than that, upside is all that matters. Downside really stops mattering once you start looking at the way uh, fantasy football pays out, where it's super top-heavy. That's a good point. Yeah, I've, I think one of the big things that I see uh, since I've been doing a lot of these underdog best ball drafts is that you'll see someone in the eight, their final round, round 18, and you look at the team and you think, wow, this team... This team really needs another receiver or they really need another running back. And then you see them take the third or fourth tight end because, uh, I don't know, Ebron was ADP 175 or ADP 185, wherever he goes. And I got him at pick 212. I just crushed it. Look at this value. And I think it's interesting because like what you said, it's what is the upside of this? What does Ebron have to do to be entering your lineup over these other two, three, four, however many tight ends you have? And that your your team's going to be dead in the water, most likely, or at the very least, that pick is dead in the water. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough to walk that line between drafting based on value and drafting based on positional need and roster construction. But especially at the end of the draft, when even if a player falls two or three rounds, if you think about the percentage they've fallen in terms of their ADP, it's a lot smaller than like a high a highly valued player who's who's fallen even a round. That percentage change in their ADP is a much bigger deal. So at the end of uh, at the end of your best ball drafts, especially in best ball, you can't trade. You're not picking up players to really even out your roster. You need to be grabbing players who can actually contribute to your lineup. Your fourth tight end is not going to contribute to your lineup, even if he's a three-round steal at ADP. So it's that that type, that type of pick is, is never correct, and especially in best ball and underdog. So let's talk a little Scott Fishbowl. At this point, pretty much every draft has ended. I hope when this podcast is released that Matt's Bob Marley division <laughs> has finished Marley. their smoke break and that they have finally finish their draft. I, I finished my draft. You finished yours. Unfortunately, I took Cam Akers. So my team's now immediately facing the uphill battle, but you know what? I'm up for the challenge. Anyway, we, we kind of discussed pre-show about how there's three different important factors with something like the Scott Fishbowl or just kind of any league in general where you have to really know what you're getting into and how to strategize for that league specifically. So what are three big things you noticed when you were invited to the fishbowl and looked at the rules, looked at the structure of everything? Yeah. So structurally, one of the biggest things about the Scott fishbowl is you can't trade. No trading means that 
you have an excess of value at one position, you can't take advantage of it. If you have four top 10 quarterbacks, two of them, you, you can't really get value out of those. Are, that's like dead value on your team because you can't trade it to a quarterback needy team to get a position that you need. So that's one, a really big deal. No trading really alters the way you should be thinking about uh, fantasy football. And it really steers you away from just drafting the best available player. Um, the second big thing is that it's not best ball and you're starting a lot of players. So usually best ball leagues are usually like the slightly deeper leagues because at some point, once you fall out of like the top 50 players, it's hard to figure out who you want to start each week. Players are so volatile. Um, so in the Scott Fishbowl, you should really put an emphasis, especially in those later rounds, on getting players who have the potential to be consistent weekly performers. I'm thinking players like Nelson Aguilar, Tyrell Williams, uh, Brian Edwards, these players who have paths to like guaranteed workload each week that you can bank on and that you can start over a player like Demarcus Robinson, who's always going to be the fourth option of Chiefs in the Chiefs offense. And who knows, who, who might score um, more points than some of these other guys, but some weeks, but is going to be a lot less bankable. And then the final part of the Scott Fishbowl uh, that's really important, and with any league, is its specific scoring settings, right? I mean, this is this is the kicker thing that we've seen blow up over Twitter and in the Scott Fishbowl recent weeks. <laughs> Everyone has an opinion on. I mean, they, the, Scott introduced kickers to the Scott Fishbowl, but then nuked them with the way he penalized misses. And teams are taking kickers too early uh, when, in reality, kickers, <laughs> kickers point scoring, if you pay attention to how kickers gain points, it's not great. <laughs> it's really not great. Yeah, I think uh, an interesting one is you mentioned Aguilar. I like Aguilar. He looks like he's going to be the entrenched number one option in a team's passing game in the NFL. Those guys usually put up fantasy points to some extent. Sometimes they put up a lot of fantasy points. Guys that I see taking kickers in the same round where I'm able to get an Aguilar. I mean, what are you doing? I, I wrote a thread on the kickers. Essentially, there's maybe two kickers every year that will have 10 to 11 Scott Fishbowl points. And the reason is that you get a minus three for missed field goals. So we can't, it's kind of accepted that we can't really predict who the good kickers are going to be. So everyone's kind of accepted and acknowledges, at least on Twitter, everyone goes, oh yeah, nod your head. Kickers are unpredictable season long. We don't, we can't predict them. Maybe week to week, you can say, oh, this is a good matchup for this kicker. But season long, we don't really know who that 10 or 11 fantasy point game kicker is going to be. And then you have to remember that that is, the absolute ceiling. So what we saw from Aguilar last year, where he emerges as the best wide receiver in Vegas, that just doesn't exist. You have to just X out that type of scenario right away where he wasn't even that sexy of a pick last year or even that special of a player. I mean, Aguilar was a fine flex play, but even that range of outcome just doesn't exist for a kicker with the scoring settings and that kiss it goodbye. You can't even get that. You're essentially just crossing your fingers that your kicker ends up being a wide receiver three, back end wide receiver two in an offense type. It's not even like a wide receiver two top 24 option. This is on an offense. This could be their their second receiver kind of thing. It's really tough to to justify. Yeah. And and the other mistake I think we saw a lot of players making this called fishbowl is teams take a lot of quarterbacks sometimes. Teams taking three to four, five, six quarterbacks. And frankly, you start a lot of non-quarterbacks. You can't really afford to be putting this fourth pick into a quarterback. Um, and in Superflex, right, you're taking, especially teams that take two early quarterbacks and then take two more quarterbacks late. So what are you, what are you trying to do here? Um, you're drafting your fourth quarterback, thinking that they're going to outperform one of these two higher round quarterbacks. If that's the case, you're probably losing anyway, because one of your top two quarterbacks 
isn't outperforming their ADP, and let's say they, they all hit, then you have no way to take advantage of that extra value because there's no trading. You can't benefit from that post-draft rise in value of some of your players because you already have other roster spots that are, that are clogging it up. Yeah, you, I think you really nailed that. If, if we're looking at running backs, the reason that it's fine to just keep pounding running back late is you can technically start up to six running backs or up to seven wide receivers in the fishbowl. What are the odds that you hit on seven breakout receivers? It's probably not going to happen. You can just keep racking them up if you felt like it. You're probably not going to max out your your ultimate ceiling. But with quarterback, if you take court, if you take two mm-hmm. quarterbacks within the first three rounds, you are essentially saying these that one of these guys is my f- super flex, one is my QB, and that any other quarterback after that, you have to immediately think this is my bye week replacement in the super flex which already isn't that big a deal because you can just throw in another running back, receiver, or tight end into that spot. But that's what you're saying is, let's put this guy there. So I, I saw really big name analysts that I think are pretty sharp people where their their second quarterback would be Tom Brady, whose bye week is week nine. And they'd have another quarterback who has an even later bye week that was even better, like Mahomes or one of these other guys, or Tannehill, potentially, something like that. And then... You think, okay, we're in a tournament. We have to get first out of 2,000. My my two quarterbacks better hit or else I'm just effed. The game over, your first or second round pick goes down. Sorry. It's like what I'm, ha- what I'm having with Cam Akers. It is, it is incredibly unlikely at this point that anything's going to happen with my team. It's not going to advance very far. I have to just accept that. But if you're drafting and there's no injuries that you're aware of, why are you just accepting that you need these extra quarterbacks? Are you just accepting that your quarterback's going to get injured? You think that you're going to somehow outcompete other teams because you took two, three, four other quarterbacks to fill in bye weeks that don't even happen the first eight weeks when you've already churned and burned and probably dropped those quarterbacks in the first place. It really just makes no sense. It's kind of like betting against yourself. And that sort of the, when, when we when we say that you have to be intentional or uh, I know you've said before that you want to maximize your winning condition. What we mean by that is you don't want to try and sabotage your your own earlier picks with your later picks and that if you take multiple backup quarterbacks in a super flex tournament type setting like the 2000 person fishbowl in which way are those guys helping if your first two quarterbacks suck and you play those two backups sorry it's really tough scoring settings you get penalized if your quarterback completes less than two-thirds of their passes you're, you're just not going to find those guys growing on trees that walk in and start completing 70% of their passes and don't throw the minus four interceptions there. So I, I think that that's kind of where the, the no trading comes in is that if you could trade, sure, you can hoard some quarterbacks and then dish them off when teams get really desperate. But without trading and with how many other starting roster spots you have to fill out, it really creates uh, zero incentive structure, honestly. there's There's no way that you have increased your odds of winning the tournament by insulating your quarterbacks. So another piece of the fishbowl strategy is seeing the the types of running backs that some people are taking late in their drafts and that I've seen Tariq Cohen, James White go a lot earlier than they should. And the reason for that, I mean, we just saw it happen with the Cam Akers injury where a backup running back like a Darrell Henderson has an increase in value and probably an increase in fantasy points during the season. What's going to happen if uh, David Montgomery misses two weeks? What's going to happen in those two weeks? So in those two weeks, 
you're in the Scott Fishbowl, you're still unsure if you want to start Tariq Cohen because Tariq Cohen's role does not directly benefit when David Montgomery goes out. Uh, Tariq Cohen has kind of established his role as his pass-catching satellite back. And in all likelihood, he's not going to get the bulk of the carries if David Montgomery goes out. You want to target running backs who you can bank on producing points in the positions that when they hit. So that's why we, we're looking at running backs like Ramondre Stevenson and Damian Williams. These are running backs who we, who we know can take the bulk of the workload. These are all purpose skill sets if the starter in front of them doesn't work out. So these are players that you can actually bank on starting. This isn't a best ball league. Scott Fishbowl isn't best ball. Tariq Cohen and James White will get you points in the best ball league, but you're good luck trying to figure out when you want to start them. The the odds that a Damian Williams gets 20 touches when David Montgomery's out is infinitely higher than Tariq Cohen. Same with, uh, we'll say Damian Harris doesn't fire or gets injured. Could be Sony Michelle, could be Ramondre Stevenson, that those guys could potentially get 20 touches. Is, are they ever going to say, oh, James, White, James, come here. We're going to force feed you. <laughs> you. You ever taken 15 carries in a game? You're about to get 15 carries in this game. You'll still get your five targets, but we really, you specifically, we want to just suddenly give all the goal line work to. They're not going to do that. And that's why you have to think about what does this player add to my team? And when can I visualize or imagine starting them? What has to happen for you to be starting James White every week with confidence compared to what has to happen for you to start Damian Williams every week with confidence? Only one thing needs to happen for you to start Damian Williams with confidence. It's a Montgomery injury. What do you need to start James White with confidence? I, I really don't know. I can't actually imagine a scenario. Yes, I can imagine some really big games from James White, but can I imagine a scenario where I put him in my lineup and just bank on 10 or more fantasy points? No. There, I don't even know how many six, seven, eight, nine different events have to happen for me to think that this is a likely 10 fantasy point floor kind of player. Every player you pick in the Scott Fishbowl or in any league where you need to make the decision to start the player yourself should have a clear path to you making the decision to start them. That's, that's, that's key. That's, about, that's what we mean by being intentional with your picks in the later round of drafts. Pay attention to the fact that Scott Fishbowl is not best ball. It's, it's a traditional league and that you choose which players to start. Because of that, you need to alter the type of players you're going for at the end of the drafts. You shouldn't just be paying attention to expected fantasy points. You need to choose players that have a clear path to starting on your team. All right. Now you, you mentioned best ball. Let's turn to best ball for a little bit. I know some of the listeners are not in the fishbowl. They're not in the satellite and they think, ah, fishbowl. I want to hear about something else. I play best ball. Great. Let's chat some best ball. Neil, we're going to bring up a few strategies and why we don't really think this is the optimal build. Which one do you want to start off with? Yeah, I mean, why don't we start with uh, with one of the simpler ones, like two tight ends early. Um, I think this is something that we've both ran into in a couple of our drafts. Once every two to three drafts, someone goes, they take George Kittle, they take they take Darren Waller, they, maybe they take TJ Hawkinson, some combination of these players, and they're really committing to taking these two early tight ends. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about this strategy, Josh? The, the bully tight end strategy, I posted on Twitter about it. I make some jokes about it. I think it's pretty funny. If you're in a tight end premium league, sure, there may be different incentives. But if you're in just a half PPR league like underdog and you take Travis Kelsey, which I mean, one out of 12 people does every draft. And then like you said, every few drafts, the person that will take Kelsey doubles down and goes Waller or Kittle in the second round. Or they might go, oh my God, the value. And they'll grab Waller or Kittle if they leak into the 301 or 302, gobbling up the deliciousness that was their second tight end. But what you have to do at this point is, 
okay, you took Kelsey. You're filling out your tight end spot. The second tight end is no longer a tight end. The second tight end has to be directly compared to every other player on the board in terms of raw fantasy points because the second tight end is now your flex because you can't bet against Kelsey. If you take Travis Kelsey, you are saying Travis Kelsey will have an incredible, easily the tight end one in fantasy. That's why I took him round one. So your, your other tight end won't enter your tight end spot. And the, the tight end just doesn't score enough fantasy points for you to justify in the second, third round. Here's my second tight end. When there's bell cow running backs, wide receiver ones and offenses on the board that I feel very confident are going to outscore them in raw fantasy points. Yep. So this is this double tight end is an example of why you can't just use value-based drafting in a best ball league where there's no trading. Let's say both your tight ends hit that second tight end, that increase in value for that second tight end isn't actually helping you. There's no way for you to actually capitalize it and make the most of it because you can't trade it to a tight end needy team. Instead, you have to start them in your flex. And the one thing to think about with all these ADPs, so say you grab Travis Kelsey and you grab Darren Waller four picks after Darren Waller's ADP and you're like, wow, the value. Darren Waller's ADP is based on people who are taking Darren Waller as their first tight end. That means they're comparing Darren Waller to the other tight ends in the pool. Darren Waller is being based on his value over an average tight end. When you're taking Darren Waller as your second tight end, you're comparing him to the flex pool. You're comparing to every running back and every wide receiver. And we all know that running backs and wide receivers are much stronger positions than tight ends. So Darren Waller's actual value when compared to all the flex spots is not baked into his ADP. What's baked into his ADP is his value compared to the other tight end spot. So taking a player based on falling at ADP as your second tight end is not taking him for the right reasons. I think the way you said that was perfect. I hope everyone caught that. If you missed it and didn't realize the knowledge Neil dropped, rewind one minute and listen again, because his comments on how the tight end ADP, it's baked in that this is a tight end, not your flex, is key. And I'll, I'll hit on the other point, because I, I know sometimes people will say, well, you know what, but but look how I, and I know this, this doesn't go if you're playing in your three-man drafts, sure, horde tight ends, there's only two other people there, but in a traditional 12-person draft, you might say, oh, but look, I'm I'm hiding the tight ends. Look at the advantage I have in my tight end slot to all these other teams. Yes, you're going to have this ridiculous advantage for the lowest scoring position, the tight end. But do you want to know who you're actually, do you want to know who should be high-fiving you and kissing your hand and bowing down to you? If you go Kelsey Waller, whoever takes George Kittle needs to high-five you right away and go, thank you. I have an elite tight end. You don't have much advantage over me in the tight end spot. And I still have my flex spot for a running back or receiver or someone that's a way higher scoring player. So really what you're doing is just boosting up the people that end up grabbing the Kittle, the Hawkinson, the Pitts, and they go, oh, I've got a I've got a pretty strong tight end. Thank you. I appreciate that you hurt some other people in this draft at your own expense. Yep. And I, I think this this tight end thing, really, it really extends... Tight end is a really extreme example, right? But we can extend this entire concept to other positions like running backs and wide receivers. You can start three running backs in underdog, right? There's two and then the one flex spot. So if you're opening your draft would say running back, running back, running back, running back, you go four running backs. What you're saying is that one of your top four picks is not starting every single week. There's no path to winning your league if you're betting against yourself like that. Same thing is true for taking too many wide receivers early. 
taking too many quarterbacks early, taking more of a position than you actually have spots to start. It's really important to stay balanced in your drafts you know, so that you're betting on yourself, so that all your top ranked picks can play together. And that's how your ceiling increases over the course of the season. Yeah, I know the, the wide receiver thirst is crazy on underdog right now. And you see people, they will fire out of the gate. Six, five, seven, eight. I've even seen nine receivers out of the gate. Obviously, we know that at a certain point, yes, you have to fill out the other positions. But if, if you're filling out eight, seven, seven, if you go seven straight wide receivers to, to start a draft, yes, you're sort of crowding out some of the receiver talent, but at a maximum, four of those players can enter your lineup in any given week for the three receiver spots in a flex. So if you go wide receiver times seven, you go, oh, I'm doing the most extreme zero RB. Nobody can stop me. Spike week, spike week, spike week. Well, what if you what if you chose what if you hit on someone like a Stefan Diggs, who actually was getting you 10 or more fantasy points in basically I think he, every single game last year potentially, Stefan Diggs was around 10 fantasy points. He can probably just enter your lineup every single week. And I know that that's a rare case where most receivers are not going to be giving you quite that floor. But still, if you have an elite receiver, most weeks they're entering your lineup. So if you say that 80% of the time he enters or 70% of the time he enters, whatever equation you want to use for how often you think those elite guys Mm -hmm. are entering, it still doesn't justify taking those picks later on when you realize that it's not even like you're putting them in the flex. You're putting them in a pool where they're then going to wrestle to see who goes into the flex. So it's the same with the the running backs. Now, one, one big thing is the wide receiver thirst on underdog right now. Wide receivers are shooting up in ADP. Yep. Pretty much every running back early outside of pretty much, I don't know, like McCaffrey and Cook are kind of entrenched as the, the 101, 102. And then after that, basically all the running backs are starting to drop. All the receivers are rising. When, when someone sees that happening, you might be at home playing underdog and thinking, it's time to panic. I have to get my wide receivers before they all disappear. And let's, let's first hit this from a tournament angle where you're in a large field tournament like Best Ball Mania and you see this happen. What is the optimal strategy at this point? Should you, should you just accept that you now have to take all your receivers much earlier and you pound receiver with everyone else? No, absolutely not. And, and here's the problem with that. You panic. You want to get your receivers. They're flying off the board. You take someone like Keenan Allen around earlier than where he was going a month ago. You take, a, you take Stefan Diggs three picks earlier than where he was going a month ago. What you're doing is you're setting yourself at a disadvantage against those teams a month ago that took those same players as you, but did it at better ADPs. So their teams are already structured uh, in a way that they're going to beat yours in those final rounds of the tournament because the rest of their team is better because they've made up for that difference in ADP with better picks elsewhere. You need to make sure you're not falling for the trends. Trends in ADP, you don't want to be buying players at their most expensive point in, 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 the, cal- in the ADP calendar. Um, Wide receivers right now are at their most expensive point. If you're buying these wide receivers in rounds two, three, four, five, you're just you're losing to the teams that did the same thing a month ago. Yeah, exactly. And that it's still not necessarily the best strategy, even in a 12-team league, to just go super heavily wide receiver, even if everyone else is doing it. Unless you truly think that one month ago receivers were mispriced. If you think wide receivers were mispriced. And that now it is actually just in that 12-team league optimal to go wide receiver heavy? Sure, go wide receiver heavy. But if you're doing it thinking, wow, Miles Sanders is slipping to the late fourth, I had him as a third rounder. 
you should be grabbing Miles Sanders in the third round. And I think that's what you have to realize is that, yes, even in a 12-team league where you're not necessarily worrying about what the team did a month ago, you still have to have your own convictions or be using projections or rankings or have your own internal idea of what these players' values are. And that if you're not following these values, even remotely close, and you're just saying, well, well, receivers went up, let's get my receivers, and you're neglecting running backs you think should have gone around earlier, you're actually doing yourself a disservice. And that all the hard work that you did to find out that Miles Sanders should be a late third, early fourth pick, yet you passed on him at the end of the fourth, early fifth round because, well, receiver ADP. That you're actually just overthinking it and you probably should have taken Miles Sanders if you thought that he was already too good of a value where he was going. But you said, nah, I, I want to fit in with the trend. Exactly, exactly. Now, let's talk about Darrell Henderson super quickly. Uh, everyone's talking about him right now. So explain to me why I'm allowed to take Darrell Henderson in a 12-team league if he's at a point that I think is acceptable, but why I am just not allowed to take him in any tournament setting right now. Yeah, so in a 12-team league, uh, you have your own projected for Darrell Henderson. You think maybe he's a high-end RB2, low-end RB1. You take him where you see fit. You're, you're fine. You're taking a player. He's a new player, basically. He's a new player than he was last week. And your 12-team best ball league that you're playing in right now has no relation to the 12-team best ball league you played last week. In a tournament, though, it's really the same, the same idea that we just talked about with wide receivers. Any Daryl Henderson team you pick in a tournament today is going to lose to the Daryl Henderson team that was picked one week ago or two weeks ago or three weeks ago. There's thousands of entries right now with Daryl Henderson teams that are getting them eight rounds at an eight rounds better value than you're going to get them now. Um, and that, it really connects, like in this tournament, you're competing against this huge pool of players all these entries and the focus should honestly be less about player evaluation when you're looking at, it doesn't really matter who Daryl Henderson is. Just the fact doesn't even matter that the Cam Akers injury happened. What, what the true thing that's happening here is that this is a player who last week was taken in the 12th round and today has been taken in the fourth and fifth round. If you're the sucker who's taken in the fourth and fifth round, you're not beating the guy who took him in the 12th round. You're competing. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter how his value has changed. It's entirely irrelevant. In the tournament, it's about taking advantage of the market and trying to figure out when you can take these players at good ADPs versus when you take these players at bad ADPs. You don't want to be taking players at the worst ADPs. You're never going to beat that the same teams who are taking those players at better ADPs. And then I think the other thing to mention with Cam Akers is you might think, are, are my Cam Akers teams in these tournaments or in these 12-team best ball leagues that I've done, are these Cam Akers teams dead? And unfortunately, they probably are. And... The, the math to back that up is that both McCaffrey and Saquon did not deliver last year for fantasy. They both had injuries. They were kind of the consensus 101-102 in the underdog best ball mania drafts last year in their tournament. I've analyzed that data. There was around a 2% advancement rate from round one to round two of the tournament for teams that had McCaffrey and Saquon. And you might think, oh, 2%. That's one in 50 chance of getting first place. And I would caution you, the 2% chance is actually a finishing first or second because the way that the tournament was structured last year, the top two teams from each 12 team division advanced to the next round of the tournament. So essentially it was a one in six, two out of 12, which is 16.7% chance of advancing. If you had a, an average roster that drops from 16.7 to about 2%. So it gets near, it gets over eight X worse odds of advancing. So if you're in a slow draft right now and you took Cam Akers, 
get weird. Do something funky. Draft like you've never drafted before. Your team is most likely going to die anyway. That's just what happens when you lose a first-round pick. And I know the 2% probably isn't quite, quite as bleak for Acres because CMC Saquon was 101-102, whereas Acres you might have gotten end of the first, early second round. But the same concept applies where you're, you're, you're swimming upstream there. Get creative, but also recognize that it, any team that you drafted a week or more ago where you didn't take Cam Akers has a slight advantage in this tournament. And even in your your 12-team league, you have a slight advantage. If that Akers team is dead in the water, like we've said, you're only competing against 10 other people now. It's basically an 11-person league at this point. So just because Akers gets hurt and some of your teams are just completely finished, it doesn't mean that there's no other potential mathematical benefit to your other teams because there is. So that's really important, especially when you're consoling yourself and you're like, oh, look at all the money I've put in. Recognize that ultimately with the Acres situation, that's a 22-year-old athlete where his career is in jeopardy. You might have lost a few dollars. Your life is going to be totally fine and you need to just get over it and accept that those Cam Akers teams just won't make the playoffs. That's okay. There's other teams to draft. Just don't draft Darrell Henderson now. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't draft Darrell Henderson now. <laughs> yeah, that's the big takeaway. Don't don't draft Darrell Henderson now. Don't draft wide receivers right now. <laughs> so let's segue now into some of your in-depth research articles that you've been writing. Because I think that the, the takeaways that we can get from those articles actually just make us better at fantasy football. Frequently, you're going to read fantasy football articles and it'll be, oh, the deep dive on Clyde Edwards-Alaire or... The the deep dive on DeAndre Hopkins and you leave it going, oh, okay, cool. I This player was going pretty early in drafts. They should still go pretty early. Maybe I'll take them one more time this month because this one writer I respect liked them. But your, your research can actually just help us from league to league to league to league to league all the way across the board. So let's talk about quarterback streaming. What should you be looking for? Because... Right now, there's a lot of negativity actually in the industry towards quarterback streaming where the Konami quarterback is rising up and there's kind of this big cliff where there's eight to 10 elite quarterbacks and then sort of everybody else. So how can you gain an edge week to week in season for redraft based on your quarterback research? Yeah, so like we're going back to redraft leagues here. I think there's a lot of cool strategies. A lot of a lot of players still play redraft. I know we talk a lot about best ball. And in redraft, your biggest decision point is often week to week. Who do you start? Who do you stream? Who do you pick up from the waiver wire to stream? And for the people who don't get one of those top six, seven QBs, you can lock and load every single week. The position really flattens out, right? There's 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 not much difference between the quarterback 10 and, and the quarterback 20 in terms of who they really are. Um, and you kind of just are guessing based on matchups, which one do I play? And one of the big correlations out there is the correlation between a quarterback and the player and the opposing quarterback they're playing against. Um, when, when, when your quarterback is going up against like a Patrick Mahomes guy, someone who's going to really throw the ball a lot, run up the score, create situations where your player has to pass the ball. That's when those are the types of quarterbacks you should be going after. Those are the types of quarterbacks who are more likely to have those high scoring big games. When playing against a player, a quarterback that scores over 22 or 22 fantasy points, your quarterback outscores their average 62% of the time. Say that one more time. For any quarterback that plays against a quarterback that scored over 22 fantasy points that game. The other quarterback that didn't necessarily score over 22 fantasy points is outscoring their average 62% of the time. Instead of your expected, you score at your average about 50% of the time. So 
This is really important because when you look through your weekly projection service, you're on NFL.com, you're on Yahoo Fantasy, the projections you're looking at aren't really accounting for this. Your projections aren't really paying attention to, to these week-to-week matchup variables. When you're, proje- when you're playing against Patrick Mahomes, when you're Derek Carr is playing against Patrick Mahomes, the projections aren't going to change, even though they know that Patrick Mahomes is going to score over 22 fantasy points. Projections only have Derek Carr in this in- instance outscoring their average 51% of the time. And if you check out my article on this, on, um, on quarterback uh, projections and, and what, what they miss, you'll see that the quarterback floor and ceiling both shift. The entire distribution of quarterback fantasy point scoring shifts when playing against these high scoring quarterbacks. So you're, when streaming, look for these guys who are going to up against the elite quarterbacks in your league because you get a higher floor, you get a higher ceiling, and you can keep up with, with and you can kind of make up that difference through streaming from the value you lost by not grabbing one of those elite quarterbacks in the draft. That's just incredible. I'll say it one more time because this we cannot overstate this. If your quarterback goes up against another quarterback with 22 or more fantasy points projected, their your quarterback will outscore their projection 62% of the time. But the projection service will only increase their the quarterback's projection above their average 51% of the time. So the the projection service overall isn't actually doing anything. A a huge portion of the time, it's the same projection or a touch above or a touch below. But if you look at Neil's article, you can actually see those plots and see that, like he said, the whole distribution of fantasy points shifts and that Derek Carr can no longer be thought of as Derek Carr if he's facing Patrick Mahomes. And we believe that Patrick Mahomes is about to shred the Raiders' poorest pass defense. That Derek Carr is Derek Carr in name only at this point, and that he's really boosted up by the game environment. And it's kind of the a DFS principle that we've known for a while, but for some reason isn't really discussed much in redraft, which is you want to target games with high Vegas game totals in DFS. And that if I know the if I know the Chiefs and Buccaneers are gonna go at it on Sunday, and Vegas thinks there's gonna be 57 points scored in that game, and they set the game total at 56 and a half. That's the game you should target. Grab either quarterback. They're both probably going to do well. We know this in DFS. So why in redraft do you suddenly go, oh, but it's Derek Carr. No, no, no. Like Neil said, it's it's Derek Carr's fantasy points distribution has changed. This is Derek Carr name only. You, you have to just bite your tongue and play the slightly more gross quarterback. And yeah, of course, if you have someone projected for 22 fantasy points or 21 fantasy points and you have another backup quarterback on your team projected for 14 yeah that's probably not the time that you go oh let me put in the 14 point guy it's like playing a sam darnold where you go oh you know but sam darnold's playing a good quarterback this is how you win on the margins this isn't some magic pill where suddenly the bad quarterback becomes a superstar but if you have a Derek carr on your team that's projected for 18 fantasy points you know what? There's a pretty good chance now that he's going to hit 20 or 21 fantasy points. It's not like Derek Carr's projection is 18, so then you pencil him in for 35. That's what you have to understand is that what we're talking about in this episode, pretty much everything we go through is winning on the margins. And that if you do enough of this, overall, you're going to have a substantial monetary increase in what you take home at the end of the fantasy season. But it's by doing all of this together. You can't just cut and choose and say, oh, I'm just going to start bad quarterbacks because I heard them say that. And I know they're going to outscore by 10, 15 fantasy points. So I just want to make that clarification, but also read the article. Neil, what's the article called? Quarterback. 
What quarterback? One sec. <laughs> I refuse to put this in the outtakes. The people are going to actually have to sit for 10 seconds while you pull up the name of your quarterback article. You've only had two published articles or whatever in your career as a, as a Roto Underworld analyst, and you don't remember the name of it? Projections versus outcomes, what quarterback projections miss. Yeah, so in the article I go over quarterbacks, I go over uh, when when you should be starting, what, what quarterbacks you should be trying to stream, and how big the advantage is that you get from finding these quarterbacks that go up against other high-scoring quarterbacks. And one of the concepts we discuss in it is, is, is player variance and, and the difference between the range of outcomes and projections and actual week-to-week variance of players. Projections are, are not, don't at all represent the variance that players actually experience on a week-to-week basis. The standard deviation of player outcomes in, is almost four times the standard deviation of projection variance and, and, the, and what, project, what weekly fantasy projections are. And that's why volatility is a really interesting thing to study in fantasy football, because we don't know how to measure it. We're, a lot of fantasy football analysis and player analysis is about finding that expected number, that number in the middle of the bell curve. What, how much is this player going to score on average throughout the season? And that's important. But in very few situations, does the player actually score that expected fantasy, uh, expected points, the expected points per game? That doesn't happen. Instead, they're all across the bell curve. That might be the center of it, but they're scoring more than it some week, less than it some other weeks. And we really don't know how to find when those weeks happen. And we don't really know that much about player volatility. So player volatility is one of the big research directions I'm looking at this summer. And I think it's really important and worth studying in the industry as a whole. So I'm just going to reiterate one thing you said and break that down a bit further. So one of the the key findings that you had in your quarterback article was that the projection standard deviation is four times smaller than the actual outcome standard deviation. So just to put some round numbers to the public on what that 4x means, if you're projecting Patrick Mahomes and you project, you might project... 25 fantasy points one week, 24 the next, 26 the next, and that these projections are all kind of within one fantasy point. His actual outcomes might be within four fantasy points and that he's not actually going to score 24, 25, and 26 fantasy points. He might score 17, then 32, then 26, and that overall, on average, his outcomes might be within four fantasy points but his projections would be within about one fantasy point week to week. So that's where that 4X comes into play because as anyone that's played fantasy before sort of intuitively knows when you, when there's a projection that if someone misses their projection, that's not like they're missing it by one fantasy point. If someone goes over their projection, it's not like they hit their projection plus only one fantasy point. And that's why with Neil's research, what we're, work, what we're working on is leveraging that information. And that's fundamentally why as the outcomes widen for a player's range, why suddenly the Derek Carr becomes a good bet when he's playing Mahomes is suddenly his actual range of outcomes is so much wider than what the the projection system may make it seem like. Now let's turn towards the other article that you just released, which was focusing more on running backs and wide receivers. One of your early points was that standard deviation isn't necessarily the best metric. So why don't you go into why it's not the best metric and give us some type of simple example so we can kind of understand in practice what that looks like and why we can't just learn the standard deviation formula and then start winning fantasy championships. 
Yeah. So I, my goal with this article was to look at player profiles, understand what type of players have higher variance week to week outcomes than other types of players. I initially started looking at standard deviation, but I quickly realized that although standard deviation is what we usually use as a proxy for, for variance in, in all types of data, it's not really useful to compare players that have vastly different scoring averages. And that's because standard deviation is a flat number that doesn't account for how much a player scores. So let's look at an example. This is an example I broke up in my article. And if you want a more detailed breakdown, take a look at the player variance manifesto article on player profiler. Player variance manifesto, folks. It's a great name and it's worth the read. Yeah. So take a look at two receivers, Tyler Lockett and Devontae Adams. Their standard deviations are really, really similar. As this is 2020, Tyler Lockett, Devontae Adams. Their standard deviation is one point apart. One of them is about 12 fantasy points per game. One of them is about 13 fantasy points. So when you say 12 and 13, what you're saying is that Tyler Lockett's scoring, is, is Tyler Lockett the 12 or the 13? The 13. So Tyler Lockett, most weeks, is going to be within 13 points above or below his average fantasy points. And Devontae Adams will be within about 12 fantasy points most weeks above or below his average. Yep. And But what's the difference? Well, so here's the thing, right? Let's think back to 2020. Tyler Lockett, he had an insane week five, week four against Arizona, dropped 50 points. He was pretty terrible the back half of the season. He was kind of unstartable. I had him on a bunch of my teams. That was unfortunate. But, uh, but we all know Devontae Adams last year was a beast. He was consistent. You knew what you were getting week in, week out. So like your first thought right now should be, then wait, why do they have such similar standard deviations? When one player was wildly inconsistent and the other player was consistently good. And the difference here is in their average points per game. Devontae Adams averaged about 10 more points per game than Tyler Lockett. So even though their flat center deviation numbers are basically the same thing, they're, for Devontae Adams, his standard deviation is a much smaller portion of the amount he scored than for Tyler Lockett. For Tyler Lockett, his standard deviation of 13, that's only three points less than his average points per game of 16. So in other words, we had very little certainty about how much, how much Tyler Lockett was going to score. His range is, was between like three and 30 points on average. That's what our standard deviation formula tells us. Devontae Adams, on the other hand, we have a much more stable understanding of how much he's going to score because his standard deviation is a much smaller portion of his actual points per game. And that's why you have to look to something like coefficient of variance, which takes your standard deviation, divides it by the mean of the data set, divides it in this case by your average points per game to really understand how much variance these players have when you normalize or control for how much they score. So give us, what, what would that formula be then? And what would the answer be for Tyler Lockett? So we have his standard deviation of around 13 fantasy points. His average is about 16. So he's averaging 16 fantasy points a game. You subtract 13, you add 13. And that basically puts him between 3 to 30, give or take, fantasy points. Now, what is the actual coefficient of variation for him? And how do we get to that number? That way, if someone at home wants to re-listen to this and do that math themselves, what what uh, pieces of information are they dividing? Yeah, so to get the coefficient of variance, you take your standard deviation, 13 points, divide it by the mean, or the average points per game. That's 16 points. You're going to get around 0.8 or 80%. So what that basically means is Tyler Lockett's standard deviation was 80% of his average. That's absurd. That means we did not know how much he was going to score. His average tells us very little info. In that way, his expect that this a player like Tyler Lockett in 2020 
We spend so long searching for what his average points per game is going to be for before the season, what his total projected fantasy points are going to be. But week to week, that tells us very little info because his coefficient of variance is so high. Devontae Adams, on the other hand, he had a much lower coefficient of variance. His coefficient of variance is about 0.4. In other words, his standard deviation is about 40% of his mean. So the info we know about Devontae Adams' points per game from before the season and the info we spend so hard trying to recreate, for someone like Devontae Adams, that info matters a lot more than that info about Tyler Lockett because he's scoring closer to his mean more often than not. When you first broke down this article for me and I was editing it, I was smiling the whole time. It, it's a really good one. And it's points like that where it really hits home what the... F- I like that it's taking numbers and actually helping the fantasy gamer understand mathematically what they experienced. Because what you experienced with Devontae Adams was totally different last year than what you experienced with Tyler Lockett. Yet you'll have some quote-unquote analysts saying, oh, these were actually the same player because their standard deviations were really similar. You just thought you liked Adams. But now if we use the coefficient of variance, we can go, you know what? Lockett's coefficient of variance was nearly double that of Adams. So it makes sense that you, the user, or you, the drafter, actually felt like one was less predictable and more volatile than the other. You also discuss wide receiver field stretchers and volatility. Is that bankable? Is there a certain archetype there where we should actually expect them to be quote-unquote volatile? It's kind of like the that, that stupid phrase, oh, this, this guy's better in best ball, which basically just means you have no idea like what the fuck to do with this guy. So you just threw him in a lineup where you didn't have to make a decision and crossed your fingers. That doesn't really mean that much. Just say, oh, he's better in best ball. Break down this wide receiver field stretcher archetype for us. Yeah, so it turns out this is a real thing. And and this really is, it fits with the intuition a lot of people have. Like I just mentioned, the higher the coefficient of variance is, the less the points per game actually matters. And this is really important when you're getting to the end of your best ball drafts, because all these guys, you're not expecting to score that many points per game. So you want to choose the guys who the average points per game number matters the least, right? So at the wide receiver position, there's a bunch of guys like these. And, and what I talk about in the article is that these are generally tertiary options on prolific offenses. So think like Scott Miller in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or like McCole Hardman in the Kansas City Chiefs. These are players who you can't really predict their target volume week to week, and it's, it's not going to be great. But because they're in such a prolific offense, a few of their targets can go a long way. These are players who run deep down the field. They're usually above average speed. They stretch the field. They catch deep balls. They can score deep touchdowns. These are players who, although having very similar points per game numbers as someone like, say, like Larry Fitzgerald last year, who wasn't great, also another person who might have shown up in like the last few rounds of a best ball draft, just like a Scott Miller. But Scott Miller was a better bet because his points per game number actually matters less to your best ball roster than someone like Larry Fitzgerald because his coefficient of variance is so high. I like to hear that. So, Neil, I think that you are actually, you're qualified to use this pretty terrible phrase with the research you've done. I think Neil is officially one of the the select few individuals where if he tells me now that a wide receiver is, is better than is better in best ball, that I'll trust him and that I actually now understand what's behind it. And that random Twitter analyst out there who goes, "Oh, this guy's better in best ball." Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but this is the type of research that you should now expect that analyst to have done beforehand in order to just casually throw out this better in best ball moniker for a player. Now let's revisit Lockett and Devontae Adams. Now from your research, we we know what happened last year. 
for 2021, do you expect Lockett to have a much higher coefficient of variance than Adams again? Do you expect Lockett to be just as volatile in 2021 as he was in 2020? No. And there's a couple of reasons why. First up, once you get to the top of the wide receiver pyramid, like the really good players, variance really narrows. You're, you're not, you're not finding, there's not much differentiators usually between the top players in terms of variance. Tyler Lockett last year is an aberration. <laughs> he was the, of all my high coefficient of variance players, Tyler Lockett was the highest scoring player by an order of magnitude, by basically 10 points <laughs> in terms of points. <laughs> so Tyler Lockett is, it was a complete anomaly last year. So, and that's why you shouldn't really be paying attention to, to, to coefficient of variance or thinking too hard about a player's week-to-week range of outcomes at the top of the draft. Like, sure, Tyreek Hill has a wider range of outcomes, maybe week-to-week, than someone like Devontae Adams. But, and more often than not, the points-per-game number is what you should really be looking at at the top of the draft. So someone for someone with Tyler Lockett, I don't, they're, they're, uh, they're going to be drafted as a, as a wide receiver too this year. And, and frankly, they're not going to have the huge variation weeks that they had last year. Uh, that's, our, that's our expected case. However, I do expect Lockett to have a bit higher coefficient of variance than Devontae Adams. And this is because, frankly, a touchdown really, a touchdown matters more for someone like Tyler Lockett than for someone like Devontae Adams. A touchdown is this flat six-point swing that happens no matter what your volume is. So for someone like Devontae Adams, who scores a lot of points, a touchdown is a less of, as a, any touchdown he scores is less of a big deal than a touchdown Tyler Lockett scores. And Tyler Lockett in the Seahawks offense, a lot of touchdowns with Russell Wilson, he has a path to a lot of touchdowns and some touchdown variance. That's where I see Lockett having a bit more variance than someone like Devontae Adams this year. But don't expect Lockett to have a 50-point week one week and like a six-point week the next like he did last year. I think that the the six-point passing touchdown or six-point receiving touchdown, we can also think of that with uh, your, your classic tight end example where random tight end out there might frequently go two catches for 20 yards week to week to week. If we're an underdog and we're playing half PPR, two for 20 is one point for the receptions and two points for the yards. That is three fantasy points. They get a two for 20. They get another two for 20. Week three, they get a two for 20 with a touchdown. Suddenly, you add six points to that in this three point per game tight end. Suddenly, you have the same receiving output for yardage and receptions, but now they have nine fantasy points. And all that happened was one of those 10 yard catches was a touchdown but suddenly their total fantasy output output was 3x what it was the week before. So that's kind of the idea with Lockett is that, yes, he should be a little bit more volatile in many different ways than Adams. And that one of them at its basic sense is that if we think Adams will outscore Lockett, that the, the quote-unquote random event of a touchdown is going to more greatly affect and be a larger proportion of Lockett's total fantasy points. So now let's let's transition into discussing actually half PPR even more in depth. That's what underdog is. It's a very good scoring setting because PPR you're you're really incentivized to go pretty wide receiver heavy early in drafts. There's a lot of things where PPR just kind of shifts incentives where it makes it more obvious what you should be doing in your draft. Let's talk about half PPR now, where the relative value of a touchdown is going to be higher than compared to a PPR platform. What, what are a few strategies that we can employ on underdog where compared to a PPR platform, that strategy is slightly more viable on the underdog platform where touchdowns matter a little more because most players score slightly fewer fantasy points on half PPR 
compared to full PPR? Yeah, so if touchdowns matter more, then it's not that complicated. Let's go for players who are in the opportunity to score a bunch of touchdowns, right? So let's think players on better offenses. Better Players in better offenses have a clearer path to more touchdowns, which benefits you more in half PPR than in full PPR. In full PPR, on the other hand, you want players with a clear path to a lot of receptions. So I think players in fast-paced offenses are going to get a lot of throws, a lot of plays, like an offense like the Arizona Cardinals. So someone who I think of as a more standard or half PPR wide receiver is someone like Mike Evans, right? Like Mike Evans is not necessarily going to be a reception monster, but we know he's using the red zone a lot. <laughs> he had a couple stat lines last year. It was like two, exactly a two catch, two touchdown. <laughs> I think he had one of those games last year. So he's, he's your perfect standard half PPR wide receiver. Yeah, when you're six foot five, 230 pounds like he is, and you're not quite as explosive as you used to be, you don't command the 25% plus target shares like you used to, your, your fantasy value gets really tied up in the touchdowns. We do think he's going to score a good amount of them, but that's one reason why, especially in a PPR league, Mike Evans has no business being drafted near somebody like a Tyler Lockett, where you can just look last season, even on a lower volume offense, Tyler Lockett crested 100 receptions last year. There, there's no world anymore where Mike Evans is a 100-catch kind of player. That ship has sailed. And that's why I think it's really important to know your scoring settings. Again, we talked about with the fishbowl. Know your scoring settings that in half PPR, really target those offenses you think are going to be elite because the value of the touchdown relative to the other fantasy points scored is going to be higher. Now let's talk about running backs based on your research. We talked a lot about receivers. There's the bell cow back, the the near bell cow who's a, the workhorse, pass catching running back, backup running back. There's a lot of different archetypes of running back. Do these different archetypes have different coefficients of variance? Are they going to be more or less predictable than others? The answer is no. And and unlike the wide receiver position where you have this player profile, this tertiary option in the prolific offense, there's really no analog there's to that in the running back position. There's no type of running back that you can bank on as having some high variance such that you can kind of dismiss their lower points per game number. Running backs variance is very much organized by just how much they score. Like true bell cow running backs, the top end running backs, no matter what, if there's someone like Nick Chubb, who's super involved in the run game, but not really that involved in the passing game, or someone like Austin Eckler, who's much more involved in the passing game, they actually have basically the same coefficient of variance. There's no really edge to be found there to take the safer person week to week. Someone may think, you may think, oh, Nick Chubb is the safer option week to week. He has, he has, less, he has, he has less volatility in his outcomes. That's not really true. They have the same. And, and it kind of stays the same as you go down like the workload hierarchy. Naeem Hines, Gus Edwards, two very different types of, of satellite backs, right? Like Gus Edwards is, is going to get carries. He's not going to get thrown the ball when Lamar Jackson's out there. And Naeem Hines is not going to get carries. He's going to just pass the ball. But they have similar points per game numbers. And their coefficients of variance are basically the same as well. So at the, our running back position, coefficient of variance is a much more compressed statistic. Um, there's less edges to be found uh, versus the wide receiver position where there really are like these player profiles of, of these very high variation players. That's interesting. So with running back, similar fantasy point output running backs have similar volatility and that you can't really compare them across groups. So you couldn't say, oh, look at this backup running back compared to this bell cow. What you should say is bell cow to bell cow to bell cow to Eckler, who's kind of a bell cow in fantasy points output, to Chubb, who's kind of a, quote, bell cow due to just how prolific he is as a rusher. All those guys are sort of the same player week to week, 
with the types of spikes they get you. I think that's really interesting, but I do know, and we're actually going to, we're going to slow play this for a few seconds to let the audience think if we were to tell you that there's one running back in the NFL, who's kind of an exception to this one running back to rule them all in volatility. Think of this as the Tyler Lockett, the 2020 Tyler Lockett of running backs. Who do you think that is? You'll take a second, two seconds. Who is that player? That player is Derrick Henry. There it is. (laughs) Derrick Henry, he can get you 200 yards, two touchdowns one week. Another week, he could get you 35 yards on 18 carries. He's a high variance, high variance winner at the running back position. There it is. Derrick Henry, an outlier in pretty much every way. (laughs) Literally every way. (laughs) It seems like every article someone writes, they always go, oh, but we have to just accept Derrick Henry's an outlier. Once again, Neil's research has concluded Derrick Henry, still an outlier. (laughs) Now, one thing that you noted in this article was that the quarterback coefficient of variance or the vault or just if you're listening and you don't like the fancy terms, just quarterback volatility in general, that historically quarterbacks have been more consistent week to week than running backs and receivers. But one thing that you also mentioned in the article is that quarterback passing yards are fairly bankable but that the rushing yardage and the, the touchdowns that a quarterback scores historically have not always been quite as bankable. But then there's the competing phenomenon where if you're doing research with 20 years of data, well, sure, there weren't as many Konami quarterbacks in the league 20 years ago as now. I mean, today we have Kyler, Lamar, Lance, Fields, Hertz. The list goes on and on. And there's so many more guys now than there used to be. What do you see this influx of mobile quarterbacks doing, if anything, to the weekly volatility of the quarterback position. Yeah, so with Konami QBs, we, we know these quarterback pass yards, the effect of quarterback pass yards on your weekly volatility is really compressed because someone throws for 400 pass yards, someone throws for 200 pass yards. That 200 pass yard difference is actually not that big a deal in the fantasy. It's only eight fantasy points. It's, it's really, it doesn't matter when you really look at that as a portion of the average, of, the, of how much quarterbacks score, right? Um, rushing yards and rushing TDs, on the other hand, they have, a, they have a larger impact on the, on the scoreboard. So Konami QBs like Kyler Murray, Lamar Jackson, these are the guys who theoretically should have higher variance. It's, it's really true at the bottom of that pile. Like people like Jalen Hurts, Cam Newton, kind of the lower end Konami QBs is where a lot of the variance actually is. Um, on the other hand, someone like Kyler Murray who still throws the ball a lot. And Lamar Jackson, who just scores a lot every single week, basically no matter what. Um, and he's going to get his workload no matter what. The higher end Konami QBs, you don't really get that same variance. So super elite Konamis have a lot less variation, but someone like Daniel Jones, Jalen Hurts, Cam Newton, these could be the type of quarterbacks you target. End of drafts, maybe your third QB, if you don't have a super strong QB core and you've really filled out the, the rest of your roster, as these are some guys who actually have a pretty high coefficient of variance at the quarterback position who might be able to get some weeks in your lineup. So dare I say it, Neil, Jalen Hurts, Daniel Jones, better in best ball? Yeah, better in best ball. Better, those, those are some better there in best There we go. <laughs> and and I, I think it's important to say that quarterback is always going to be always, always lower variance than, than running back and receiver. Their workloads are more guaranteed week to week. They are less dependent on game script or the cornerback matchup. A pass touchdown is worth four points, while a rush TD and a pass TD, uh, a reception TD is six points. And quarterbacks score more fantasy points overall to begin with. 
So the higher variation events have less impact on a quarterback than they would on a running back and wide receiver. So the quarterbacks in general, by the coefficient of variation set, are always going to be lower in variance than running backs, wide receivers, tight ends. So if you're looking forward now, are there any other research topics in this similar realm that you want to research? Or do you think that you've just covered it all and you're just going to sit back on the couch now the rest of this summer? As much as I'd like to sit back on the couch the rest of the summer, <laughs> we, I think I really do want to look at matchup variables. If we found that player profiles in very specific instances have higher variances than other player profiles, then maybe there's more of an edge to be found in matchup variables like we found with quarterbacks, right? Quarterbacks that play against good quarterbacks, that's where you kind of find the outlier games. So the, th- the thing about matchup variables is that it allows us to turn volatility into something we can get an edge in in terms of week-to-week lineup decisions in redraft. And we've been making this entire joke about like better in best ball this, enti- this entire show. And the thing is, that's the entire idea that a, a high-variance player is better in best ball is based on this fact, this inherent like assumption we make that we can't predict volatility. Matchup variables is where we start to predict volatility. And maybe one day our understanding of matchup variables will come to the point where volatility is you want to be chased, you want to be chasing volatility in traditional leagues as well, because you have a decent chance of actually predicting when those volatile weeks are going to happen. I like that. So just to give everyone a concrete example, I have we'll take Daniel Jones, the the quarterback that I've joked is better in best ball. And what I mean by that is Daniel Jones has he, he, he's probably going to have more week-to-week variation in his fantasy point output than another quarterback who might average the same fantasy points per game he does. You heard Neil say, you know what? There might be certain matchup variables that we can leverage to actually know in a traditional league when to start Daniel Jones. Going full circle, if Daniel Jones is facing the Cowboys and Dak Prescott has a really good quarterback projection himself. This goes back to your earlier research. Dak Prescott's projected for 24 fantasy points. What does that mean? We think there's going to be a lot of points scored, at least on one side of the ball. It's probably, more often than not, going to translate to the other side. And that's where 62% of the time, a player like Daniel Jones in that situation is going to exceed their average, or is going to exceed their projection because the whole game environment and those matchup variables have fundamentally changed from what he usually faces, where now he's suddenly thrown into a game environment where we expect it to be high scoring. It might be faster paced. There's a lot of things that now become more likely based on that matchup. So that's kind of bringing full circle how you can understand the the quote unquote better and best ball profile and what that really means. And here's how you can take advantage of it, even in a traditional league. Let's turn now to season long versus week to week correlation. Neil, help me differentiate the season-long versus week-to-week correlation with an example, because I've heard those terms thrown out there. Many people probably have where they go, oh, season-long correlation, week-to-week correlation. And to most of us, it just kind of goes over our head where we think, "What? I saw the word correlation, I zoned out. Now that you have the listener here, they're alive, they're conscious. What's the, what's the actual difference and how can we understand that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're getting to stacking here, right? Which has obviously been a huge topic um, these recent weeks. Josh put out a monster podcast on it in, in the last few weeks and, and a big article is going to be coming out soon. And, I, and, and with stacking, we, we often talk about chasing correlation, but I think it's really important to be specific about what type of correlation that actually is. And the truth is correlation can be split up into week to week correlation versus season long correlation. And 
players, for example, let's take two wide receivers in like the Chargers offense, like Keenan Allen and Josh Palmer. These are both players who don't necessarily, who if, if one outperforms their ADP, it's a really good likelihood the other one's going to outperform their ADP because the real variable that's controlling it all is like the Chargers offense being good. So someone like Keenan Allen and Josh Palmer have season long correlation because they both are connected to the same underlying variable of the Chargers offense outperforming expectations. However, on a week to week basis, Keenan Allen and Josh Palmer are going to be competing for targets. They're going to be competing for opportunities. So they don't necessarily have week to week correlation. Um, a good week for Keenan Allen is literally opportunities being taken away from Josh Palmer and vice versa. So they actually probably have a weaker week to week correlation than they do when we're thinking about it in terms of season outcomes, where their outcomes are actually probably pretty correlated. So let's bring that back to a 2020 example. We're just going to keep pounding the Seahawks example. We're, I'm pounding the table for them. I like this offense for this next year, but they fit well into this. Think about last season with Russell Wilson, Tyler Lockett, and DK Metcalf. What happened to Metcalf and Lockett? They were both fifth round picks. They both greatly exceeded their ADP. They were both top 10 PPR wide receivers. But week to week, there were only a couple weeks where both of them actually were outperforming their projection. Usually, it was either a Metcalf or a Lockett week. And that's really the, the key there. Same with if you think about the Texans. The, Deshaun Watson was the most efficient quarterback in the NFL last year. But there weren't that many weeks where both Brandon Cooks and Will Fuller went nuclear. It's usually one or the other. Because like you said, they're directly taking away touchdowns. If you knew that Deshaun Watson threw three passing touchdowns in a game, and then you see Cook's stat line and see that Brandon Cooks has two touchdowns, at most, Will Fuller could have one touchdown. There's a good chance that week he didn't have any. So that's really some 2020 examples. That way you can kind of put the week-to-week correlation versus season-long correlation in action in your head, rewind to the 2020 season. That's how it played out. Yeah. And, and Josh, I think it would be cool if you introduced your, your stacking chart from your article here. So we can kind of talk about best ball versus redraft and talk about quarterback wide receiver pairs um, in, both, in both formats. Sure. So hopefully this article is out by the time this podcast is out. If not, it will be out within a day or two afterwards. It's actually ready at this point. I have some final edits to make, and then this will be on the website. One of the coolest parts of this article is, it, is this, the stacking chart where I look at different combinations of quarterbacks and their receivers and ultimately see how many weeks both those players had spike weeks. And when both players had a spike week, how many points are they combining for? So what I was using that in my article to demonstrate is that you should stack in best ball because, and that's just showing how you can stack, you can stack in best ball on the kind of the micro level, the really nuanced level of let's look at these two individual players and what that stack is doing. And the thought process is that in best ball, you have very few players. In underdog, you only take 18 players to fill out quarterback, running back, receiver, tight end. You take too many of, of one position next to you know another position's week. It's all about balance. Also, you want to make sure that you have startable players each week. You don't want to have a two-point receiver where that happened to be one of your three best receivers for that week. But that can happen. And if that happens, that week doesn't get taken back. You now just got a two-point receiver for your third receiver position for that week. Sorry. So the idea behind the stacking chart is showing you the correlation between these players week to week. And that a quarterback receiver are going to be 
very closely linked and that if you stack them and one of them has a good week, there's a good chance the other has a good week. And next, you know, it's one fewer position that you have to be anxious about getting filled in your best ball roster. Yeah. So I like one of the really cool parts about this, this chart is that in general, quarterbacks with their wide receiver, their same wide receiver one enter your lineup more often as a pair and score more points as a pair than that same wide receiver with a different similar quarterback or that same quarterback with a different similar wide receiver. And I believe that even though this research was on best ball in mind, it's actually a lot more impactful for traditional leagues than it is for best ball. And, and here's the thing, right? Because in best ball, the metric you're really trying to, trying to maximize is your total points scored over the course of the season. So sure. Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett as a pair enter your lineup more often than Patrick Mahomes and Tyler Lockett. And when they do enter your lineup, they score more points as a pair. But we all know that you'd rather have Patrick Mahomes and Tyler Lockett than Russell Wilson at Tyler Lockett at cost. Like not, not including cost. We're not accounting for cost here. Obviously, Russell Wilson goes three rounds later than Patrick Mahomes. So because, and why is that? The reason is because Patrick Mahomes, sure, not all his weeks are going to line up with Tyler Lockett's weeks, but you don't actually care. You kind of just want to maximize your total fantasy points over the course of the season. And Mahomes is going to contribute more points to your lineup than Russell Wilson is. Um, however, that what makes this, this chart and this, this research so powerful is that it has huge implications, in my opinion, for traditional leagues. Because I think there's an argument to be made in traditional leagues that you'd rather actually have a Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett together in traditional leagues than Patrick Mahomes and Tyler Lockett. Because what this chart is saying is that more often the pair of Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett were the best possible option for your team than the pair of Mahomes and Lockett because Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett are correlated. So in redraft, I'm starting my studs every week. I'm starting my top receiver. I'm starting my start quarterback, top quarterback. Obviously, I'm starting Russell Wilson. Obviously, I'm starting Tyler Lockett. Based on this chart, I actually gained more points by starting Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett every single week in from a weekly standpoint, in that I actually got these weeks where I won every single time. While if I actually started Patrick Mahomes instead of Russell Wilson, then their spike weeks wouldn't have necessarily lined up. There would be weeks where Patrick Mahomes goes off, but Tyler Lockett puts in a five-point dud, and I, I waste the Patrick Mahomes week. That's not wasted in best ball. Patrick, Patrick Mahomes' points are still contributing to your total points scored at the end of the season. In traditional redraft, though, if you come out with an L, all those points scored are actually wasted. So this is a really powerful type of chart. And this is why week to, this is really emphasizes the difference between week to week stacking and season long stacking. What's the value of the Russ Lockett stack in best ball? The value lies in the season long correlation. You're drafting Lockett in like the fifth round. You're saying that Lockett, you're, you're basically making the statement that Lockett is going to be a good player over the course of the season and that the Seahawks offense is going to be good. So by drafting Russell Wilson, you're, giving you yourself season-long correlation to that one variable that both these players are going to outperform their ADPs. And to win in best ball, you need your players to outperform their ADPs. So having more correlation from a season-long perspective is super important, especially in a tournament when you get to week 14 and suddenly it turns into a DFS game where what that's week-to-week correlation. And then Russell Wilson, Tyler Lockett is super, super good in that week-to-week correlation because as the chart shows, it's more likely that Russ and Lockett hit as a pair than Mahomes and Lockett hit as a pair. And that's where a lot of the value lies. Um, in traditional redraft, the week-to-week correlation becomes super important throughout the course of the season because that's how you actually get win. That's how you win weeks. 
I think that's an excellent point that you made. When we had our kind of strategy planning session yesterday, you brought that up for the first time. I thought it was a really interesting way to look at it. And I'll give one more uh, example from this article that will drop soon. So the first round of the Best Ball Mania underdog tournament last year was you had to finish top two in your division of 12 people through the first 13 weeks of the season. And if you look at teams that had both Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill, on average, nine of those first 13 weeks both entered your lineup in best ball. So we don't know teams that took Mahomes and Hill, they're taking other quarterbacks, they're taking other receivers, but still nine of those 13 weeks, Mahomes and Hill entered together. And on average, when they entered your lineup together, they gave you over 50 fantasy points. So if you can think about that in a redraft perspective, you're crushing your opponent nine of 13 weeks. You likely went nine and four. Maybe you did better, but you're kind of at minimum going to be going nine and four then is a way to think about it, where you're now making your fantasy playoffs in a redraft league because you went nine and four. Then if you think about the fantasy playoffs in pretty much all these leagues, you compete against one person head to head and you just want to have a really high score. You have no idea what they're going to do. And you just cross your fingers and you say, if Mahomes and Tyreek Hill at this point have two more good games in a row and the Chiefs cook twice, I won my fantasy championship. And that there's just fewer things like Neil said, that you have to get correct in order to get that big payoff. And it's really cool to think about how a lot of these best ball concepts can also then be applied theoretically and mathematically to a traditional managed seasonal league. Yeah, a predictable week-to-week spike, week-to-week correlation is more important in traditional leagues than best ball. Because traditional leagues, you have to make the decision before the week who you were starting. So getting less variables right Having, having to rely on less variables going your way is really, really important in a traditional league. Well, in a best ball league, over the course of the season, the total fantasy points scored is, is the metric you're optimizing. So having spike weeks line up is not as big of a deal. So now let's turn towards, you had this one best ball team that uh, the other analytics intern, Michael O'Connor, threw up on Twitter. I preferred Michael's team. I actually made fun of one of your roster decisions at the time. And I think I might end up eating my words for that. So what Neil did that I made fun of is he took both Blake Jarwin and Dalton Schultz. Can you believe it? This guy took two tight ends from the same offense. And I kind of chuckled at him, but I think Neil's argument for that strategy is actually quite convincing. And I might end up being the donkey in all of this. Why don't you outline your thought process and why taking two late round tight ends on the same team like Jarwin and Schultz might not actually be a death nail in your team. Yeah. So what I'm, I'm looking at right here is I'm, I'm going for the, for negative correlation here between Schultz and Jarwin. So what does that mean when you, when you say negative correlation? So, so far we've thought about this. What we've been talking about so far with correlation is generally positive correlation, where if Mahomes scores a lot of fantasy points, Tyreek Hill probably did as well. And if Mahomes scored very few fantasy points, Tyreek Hill probably scored very few as well. So then what would the op, what's negative correlation then? So negative or inverse correlation would, would be the opposite effect. So Dalton Schultz scores a lot of points and Blake Jarwin doesn't score that many points. And this type of relationship throughout the season where one scores a lot, the other scores a little. So their scores are inversely correlated. That's the idea behind negative correlation. And my idea here with the, with the Dallas tight end draft is I'm taking my, I've saved on tight end. I'm taking my three tight ends at the end of the draft. I'm not expecting to ever start two of them the same week. I start one tight end, 
theoretically a tight end could show up in my flex, but my 19th round second tight end isn't showing up in my flex. Like that's just not going to happen. So I'm not really capping my ceiling. People may say, well, oh, if you're betting on like one to succeed, then why would you handicap yourself then by also placing a bet on the other player? Because if you think one's going to exceed ADP, shouldn't the other one then not exceed ADP? And yeah, that's true. But I only need one to hit because I only start one tight end. I'm not capping my ceiling. I don't. I never have to play another tight end. I never. I never have to start two of them. I really just want points out of that that position every single week because it's my final three rounds in the draft. Those are my final three picks. And having that week to week negative correlation basically improves my odds that I'm going to have. I'm going to generate points of that position despite devoting very little draft capital to it. I think another way that we can take this is if we look at the receiver position, you should always, when possible, draft, if they're similar ADPs, multiple receivers on the same team. And yes, we've we've beaten this dead horse, stack your receivers with their quarterback, but let's just say that you already have your stacks. Let's say that you have have the Chargers stack and you you have the Vikings stack. So you already have Herbert with some Chargers, you have Herbert and Allen, And then you have Cousins with Justin Jefferson. It's towards the end of the draft. Obviously, you should prioritize Vikings and Chargers players if they're similar ADPs. But what if early on in the draft, in the second or in the first round, what if your first round pick was Tyreek Hill? And you're at towards the end of your draft. It's actually good, even though you don't have Mahomes, if you have Hill, you might want to consider Demarcus Robinson or Byron Pringle or one of these other completely ancillary Chiefs receivers where that could end up being the tiebreaker where you say, do I grab uh, do I grab James Washington, random Steelers player, or do I double down on the Chiefs and say that week to week there might be some negative correlation where let's just say that Demarcus Robinson has a big week. Tyreek Hill might not have a big week that week. And that, yeah, it sucks that your first round wide receiver didn't crack your optimal lineup that week. But cross your fingers, there, there might actually be a decent chance now that a guy like Demarcus Robinson enters your lineup. Yeah, so with, with, with these wide receiver spike weeks, these, these end of draft wide receiver spike weeks, right? You're trying to make sure that your lower ranked players, when they have their spike week, their two spike weeks on the season, they're actually contributing to your lineup. By taking Demarcus Robinson when you already have Tyreek Hill, you're saying that the week you're basically what you're betting on is that the week Demarcus Robinson is having his amazing three touchdown, like 150 yards. He beats all his corners. He's in the best matchup. Guess what? That's the week when Tyree kill is most likely not doing much. He doesn't need to. So that's the week when you actually need the production out of your lower ranked players. And guess what? You have Demarcus Robinson on the week. Tyree Hill struggles. You have the player who's actually most likely to spike in that week. So let's actually think about, Tyree, let's say Tyreek Hill doesn't have a good game. Demarcus Robinson ends up being the one who has the good game. What if you hadn't taken Demarcus Robinson? Let's let's think about the other way. You did not take Demarcus Robinson. You were worried. I don't want to have too many Chiefs. I already have Tyreek Hill. He's a he's a beast. I don't need anybody else. So you end up grabbing you grab KJ Hamler instead. The 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 one week that Tyreek Hill gets you four fantasy points, and then you look to your bench type players and go, oh come on. Fingers crossed that a late round wide receiver hits because Hill got four points. Sure, KJ Hamler could have 20 points, but it's really rolling the dice on his distribution. And that if 10% of the time KJ Hamler gets you a good week, great. We have a one in 10 chance that when Tyreek Hill had four points, KJ Hamler is going to have a decent amount of fantasy points. But it's much more likely 
that if KJ Hamler was on the Chiefs, or if we look at someone like Demarcus Robinson, another Chiefs player, that 10% is going to go up. Where if Hill doesn't have a good week, there is now a greater chance because we know we like the Chiefs offense. There's going to be someone's going to score that week. Someone's going to have yardage. There's now an increased likelihood within that specific week that someone like Demarcus Robinson hits because of that negative correlation week to week potentially. Whereas with KJ Hamler, you there's there's no relationship. You purely are rolling the dice, saying, "Well, I hope hope the Broncos fired this week." Yep. So I guess what you're trying to do, I mean, if you're drafting KJ Hamler for those bottom ranked players, you really want to maximize their value over basically the replacement player. And when you're and when you're grabbing KJ Hamler. Let's say a spike week comes the next week. But guess what? Tyreek Hill dropped 35 points that week. So KJ Hamler isn't even making your lineup. <laughs> like he scores maybe a touchdown, goes for 80 yards. It's a, it, that's the week you were banking on all season. That's what you wanted from him. But it came on the wrong week, so it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even help your team. But by taking the negatively correlated player at the bottom of your draft, you're not capping your ceiling because you want your ceiling is when all your top picks play together anyway. That's your ceiling. It's, your ceiling is not happening when Demarcus Robinson is entering your lineup. Sorry, but <laughs> what it does is it, it, it helps you in, in in the week when Tyree when you actually need it when you need your bench players to to, to step up. So let's talk about quarterback running back now. Some people will take a quarterback and a running back on the same team in best ball. What what do you think about this? Where let's just say that a quarterback and running back are perfectly priced, where the quarterback goes in rounds seven or eight, and that's exactly where they should go based on your projections, all your work, the running back goes in round four. And based on all your projections and all your work, that's a round four running back. Should you take those two players together in best ball? Would you advocate for it? Would you advocate against it? Is it kind of neutral? So I think it really depends on who this running back is. There's some running backs who are pass catching running backs. They're really tied to their quarterback. And you're taking this running back in the fourth round, this quarterback in the seventh round. You kind of want both of them to start most weeks. Like those are, those are players that you want to start most weeks. You want positive correlation there. But if your running back, say, is like a Zach Moss type and your quarterback is Josh Allen, right? Zach Moss isn't catching many passes in the passing game. One of these good games is going to come when the other person is probably not having their, their best game. Well, the problem is you've now selected two players who you kind of want to start most weeks based on the capital you've invested in them, right? Zach Moss, you kind of want him to be in your lineup. Josh Allen, you definitely want him to be in your lineup. So if you have these negatively correlated players at these different positions, you're really capping your ceiling. So I, I, the, how about if we take like a, if we even at a higher ADP, someone like Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, that's an even worse version of Josh Allen and Zach Moss because you're taking only two quarterbacks, right? Two or three quarterbacks. You want Ryan Tannehill to start. Obviously you want Derrick Henry to start. So you're really capping your ceiling by taking both of these players who who are negatively correlated at different positions. Negative correlation is really a trick that should be reserved for the end of drafts at the same position, because that's when the value over replacement is greatest. When when your bad player has a spike week and is negative correlated with a higher ranked player at that same position, well, that means that higher ranked player probably not having a great game. That's when you actually need your bench to step up that week. So that value over the replacement is maximized when you're doing using negative correlation at the same position, not across positions. So this is an interesting one because Neil and I disagree slightly. We both agree Tannehill-Henry, this does not seem like the most optimal combination when Henry is never, he's not catching passes. I would argue Zach Moss-Josh Allen is still acceptable because Zach Moss is just mispriced. 
and that Zach Moss should be going two to three rounds earlier than he currently does. So I can understand how it might not be the most optimal combination based on correlation, but I would argue that the margins here are small enough that if a running back is just mispriced by one, two, three rounds, that you should still pull the trigger. So stay tuned for that. We'll probably have to do more research to figure out whether or not the the Josh Allen-Zach Moss combination is good, bad, if it's only good because Moss specifically is so mispriced when it's a starting running back going in the 9th, 10th, 11th round. So we'll probably get back to you on some point with that via article, Twitter thread. So stay on the lookout because we had, we had a nice debate about this one yesterday. And I think that there, that either side still has a chance to, to quote unquote win this one. So that'll, that's part of the fun of this. Let's talk about a couple running back duos that maybe we don't actually hate where you might, the, the uninformed person might look and at first glance, all they know is that you're not supposed to handcuff. So they say, oh, two running backs on the same team. That's horrible. I'll kick it off. One example of a, a tandem running back pair that I don't dislike is going at the end of your draft, Tevin Coleman, who's on the Jets, and then taking Ty Johnson, who's on the Jets. And my thought process behind taking both of them is that I think individually both can exceed their ADP. Where if you just look at the gross fantasy points at the end of the season, both could surpass their ADP. And then the second part of this is that it's unlikely they're both hitting their ceiling in the same game. And that ideally you have two super late round running backs and you're getting most of a starting decent running back from that. Where if Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson each start four or five games or they combine for 10 starts, you're crushing it. You could even have Michael Carter lead the backfield and Michael Carter starts seven games and the remaining 10 games, five apiece, go to Car- go to go to Ty Johnson and Tevin Coleman. But I'd argue that even in that type of scenario, it's still pretty easy for Johnson and Coleman to pay off at ADP. They're negatively correlated where the coaching staff rides the hot hand and they say it's a Ty Johnson week. He gets 15 fantasy points. Next week, oh, it's a Tevin Coleman week. He gets 12 fantasy points. The next week, it's Tevin Coleman week, 17 fantasy points. And that you're going to be getting a usable week every single week at nearly no opportunity cost at the end of your draft. Is there anyone else that you would add to this list where it's a running back pair where you can understand how, in theory, this actually might not be crushing your draft? Yeah, so an example that's pretty very different from Tevin Coleman and uh and and tie is 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 Derrick Henry and Darrington Evans. So this is a pair of players that resembles more of a traditional handcuff. Except Darrington Evans is, is pretty cheap, right? You don't want to spend up on the handcuff. But every player, no matter how good, is going to have bad weeks. Derrick Henry, we know last year we talked about it earlier. He had a huge coefficient of variance for the amount he scored. Every good player is going to have bad weeks. Taking Darrington Evans does not necessarily mean that you're betting against yourself. Because you can still think Derrick Henry is going to outperform ADP, but you can also simultaneously believe that some weeks it's going to lean pass heavy. Darrington Evans is probably going to be used in the passing game. He might actually take the bulk of the production. And guess what? Those are the weeks when you most need your bench to step up. Those weeks when Derrick Henry isn't having a great week. So getting Henry and Evans are players that will both have roles in their offenses. Both have potential to, but none of them is a, Darrington Evans isn't a pure handcuff, right? He's more of a player that is going to play every week, have a limited role, and is likely to have a spike week on the week where Derrick Henry doesn't have that good of a game. So that's the type of negative correlation at the running back position where you shouldn't be drafting this player thinking, 
oh, just in case Derrick Henry gets injured for eight weeks, because guess what? That's bad thought. That's bad process. And Derrick Henry gets injured for eight weeks, you lose anyway. But if your thought process is instead, well, I need my bench to step up on the weeks, the two, three weeks of season where Derrick Henry kind of kind of doesn't do anything, then that's a, that's the right type of thought process that, that can lead you to Darrington Evans. Yeah, I like that. Another one that I'll add, I think I haven't drafted this one yet, but I'm not opposed to it. It just hasn't quite... It hasn't quite been there yet, but I think the David Montgomery Tariq Cohen one's interesting. We've seen Jordan Howard and Tariq Cohen both be really strong in fantasy from, I believe that was 2018, where they both were RB2s in fantasy. And I could see that happening this year, where if Fields ends up being a pretty decent quarterback, that we could have David Montgomery being kind of the bruising back that pays off at his ADP. And he finishes as kind of a mid-range RB2. You're you're fine with where you took him in the fourth round. And that the three to five weeks where Montgomery isn't quite delivering what you hoped for, there's a good chance it was just in a come-from-behind kind of game where Fields is airing it out. And ter- next thing you know, you blink and Tariq Cohen had eight targets in those three games where Montgomery was getting you four or five fantasy points. And that the idea is that If Montgomery, my great running back who I took early in the fourth round, is out of my lineup, I want to be pretty damn sure somebody else can step in for that specific week. Because I don't care if there's another running back on my bench that scores 15 points when Derrick Henry scores 16 points. And Derrick Henry was my RB2 that week. So I had maybe Dalvin Cook getting me 25 fantasy points. Montgomery getting me 16. Another running back getting me 15. That doesn't matter. That guy doesn't jump into a running back slot. It's, sorry, dude, we're closed. The running back position's full this week. Whereas, if Montgomery doesn't do well, there's a much better chance that Cohen is doing well that week. Yeah, and there, and there are two other types of, like, this this type of, like, bruiser lead back, kind of pass-catching secondary back that we kind of identified. One of them is Damian Harris, James White. So remember, like, J- James White, Terry Cohen, we talked about this earlier with Scott Fishbowl, how we should stay away from these players. Remember, this is best ball. We're talking pure best ball strategy here. Don't use this in, in traditional leagues. Do not try and guess which week Tariq Cohen's going to outscore David Montgomery in a traditional league. This is a pure best ball strategy. And, and finally, back to Zach Moss, Devin Singletary. And we at Player Profile are pretty, we're pretty low on, on Devin Singletary this year. But from a game theory standpoint and the archetype you're looking for, if you're high on De- Devin Singletary, a Zach Moss, Devin Singletary negative correlation uh, type build is just in line with these others. Now, I think this actually is more fun. Let's talk about the ones that we don't like, where we've seen them. I I saw some yesterday. I saw some the day before. There are constantly people, they'll post them up on Twitter. They'll victory lap them. They're excited. And they'll have some decently expensive running back duos. And I'm going to kick this one off where I saw a lot of people that took Akers Henderson. This is pre-Akers injury. They took Akers Henderson. And you want to know what? That team is dead. Because like we said, if you lost Akers... Sorry, if you lose your first or second round pick, your team's probably done. Yes, those teams aren't quite as done because Henderson, your 12th round pick, now sort of looks like a fourth or fifth round pick. But still, do you really want to trade your first round pick for a fourth or fifth round pick? No, your team's probably not going to win. So that one, I saw that a good amount where people were like, oh, but but what if Akers gets injured? Okay, that's the same thing with like Henry and Evans. What if Henry misses a week or Henry has a bad week? You have Darrington Evans, who you grabbed in pretty much the final round of your draft filling in. But to grab Henderson, you're actually spending an 11th or 12th round pick on Henderson. There's some pretty viable players. We've brought his name up before. Nelson Aguilar is a starting wide receiver on an offense in the NFL. 
And you have to take pre-Akers injury, you had to take Henderson before somebody like Aguilar. When I think there's a pretty strong case that Aguilar is going to be entering your lineup as your wide receiver three or flex pretty routinely throughout the season. What's another example, Neil, where you see those teams and shake your head and go, you know, there's just, I don't see a chance where this was the optimal strategy. There's no world where this is the the optimal combination pick. Yeah, so I think a, a great example of this is, is is Zeke and Tony Pollard. So with this combo, you may be thinking, oh, isn't this like the same concept we just talked about um, with some of these other running backs? Like Zeke might go out for even even like Zeke, great, great player. He's probably going to go out two weeks, right? He, he, knowing every running back gets injured for a bit. And don't you want Tony Pollard for those weeks? Cause he's the highest kind of like lower round bench player that like they have the highest probability of contributing. That's true. But Tony Pollard is just simply too expensive for that. Right. This is a player that by taking your, there's an opportunity cost where you're not taking a wide receiver. That's actually helping your ceiling. And you never want to be taking these negatively correlated players when it comes at the cost of grabbing a player that can reasonably help your ceiling. That's why 20, like these expensive handcuffs stay away from, because by taking them, you actually are betting against yourself. I think that's good. I, another way to think about this is the, the picks that you're making in the final rounds of your best ball draft, your 16th, 17th, 18th pick, these guys are only contributing 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 fantasy points to your roster during the season. They're really not contributing that much. So that's why if you take Darrington Evans, you're basically comparing him to a pl- other players that are contributing 10, 20, 30, 40 fantasy points during the season. The bar that Darrington Evans has to clear to look better than your other alternatives is really low. Conversely, if you take Tony Pollard in the ninth or 10th round, sometimes he even goes earlier than that, you now need to look at ninth and 10th round picks and how many fantasy points those guys are frequently contributing to lineups. And if that player's frequently contributing 100 or 125 fantasy points to your lineup, suddenly the bar that Pollard has to clear is so much higher than Darrington Evans and that the probability of him clearing that bar while also you getting value on your first round pick in Zeke, it's a much, you're, you're threading the needle. It's much harder at that point. I'll also add uh, Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison. Madison's too expensive. And then I think this is, this is probably our personal favorite of the one to avoid, Chubb Hunt. And you might look at just raw fantasy points. That's the best is the box score scout who looks at the year before with no context. And you say, but look at Chubb and Hunt last year. Chubb would have been a fine second round pick and Hunt would have been a fine fifth or sixth round pick last year. If you look at their fantasy points, it's true. They were both top 10 running backs in fantasy, but they both ran so pure. And it's a great gift, I think, to fantasy gamers that both of them ran so pure with touchdowns because it makes them seem like they're both values at ADP. But what you have to remember is OBJ was out for a huge portion of last season. There were a lot of other random factors in addition just to the touchdown variance that happened to greatly favor both of them, where if you look at their touchdowns per touch, these guys are top 10 running backs in the NFL last year. It's pretty rare for a tandem to have that. In fact, I actually can't remember it being done before. Maybe there was the the Mark Ingram, Alvin Kamara year where they were both top five or top six running backs. Maybe that happened with touchdown purity, but still... Is that really what you want to chase? I say no. And then another one is the Travis Etienne, James Robinson one. I see a lot of people take both. And what they'll say is, uh, oh, you know what? I think one's going to be used on these downs. One's going to be used on the other downs. That's fine. But 
If you're taking them together, they are just too expensive. And then the other thing I'll hear with Robinson in particular is, well, look at Chris Carson and Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny, first round pick, Chris Carson, seventh round pick, just like Robinson undrafted. ETN, first round pick, just like Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny was relegated by Chris Carson. And I just don't see the parallel there other than, yes, ETN and Penny were first round picks. ETN is a far more prolific pass catcher. He has a far better prospect profile across the board. He's playing with his college quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, in the NFL. The transition is going to be significantly less rough than it was for Penny. Plus, Penny has had so many different injury issues. And at this point, we just really have no idea how ETN's going to do with injuries. But just assuming he's going to have the injury profile of Penny because the only thing you could think of was their first round picks is just bad process. Yeah. And worst case, Travis Etienne also has a, a, the floor that Rashad Penny never had, right? Travis Etienne, we know is going to be involved in the past game, no matter what. Well, Rashad Penny really never had, 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 a, had a floor outcome like Travis Etienne does. There's really no parallel here between the two situations. Yeah. And also, I mean, he didn't play with Russell Wilson. If we had seen Russell Wilson and Rashad Penny in college and Russell Wilson dumping the ball off to Penny and getting him nearly 600 receiving yards like ETN had last year from Lawrence, then sure, we could say, all right, at that point, there's the parallel. We need to see what happened. But no, Russell Wilson was not his quarterback. Penny was not a prolific pass catcher. We need to put that one to bed. And just back to these back to these running back pairings that we're talking about, really, this all really comes back to being intentional with our picks, right? We're talking these last few rounds. These are marginal, marginal gains you're making. In all likelihood, this decision isn't going to win your league, but it might. Like this, this is the type of thing that over a large sample size, when you play fantasy football, it's a high variance type of game. You play a lot of drafts. These are the types of decisions. Make sure you're being intentional with these last few rounds. This is the type of pick where you're trying to round out your roster, make sure correlations work. So your roster construction is as strong as possible. Um, that's why we're really focused on spending a lot of time with, with these, these handcuffs that work, handcuffs that don't work. Instead of having like a, a do-all work, a rule, never take handcuffs, always take handcuffs. It all depends and paying attention to what works and what doesn't. No, I think uh, this one, this is just kind of a funny thing that I wanted to bring up, but I think that this can potentially help you if you're in a deep best ball league, looking at a late, late round wide receiver. Two options that have intrigued me recently are Rashard Higgins and Quintez. I still, I need to learn how to say his name. Cephas or Cephas? 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 Yeah. Quintez and Rashard Higgins. What's funny about these two guys is that they are slow as molasses. They both run 4-6-4-7. Yet, both of them ended up being used kind of like a situational deep thread with their A dot, their yards per reception, how many routes they're running versus how many air yards they have. And I have come to one conclusion about these players. I think they have to be kind of good at football. They have to be savants. Root running savants to be getting open with these four sevens down the field. <laughs> if Cephas runs a four seven and he's a rookie and he's somehow getting open and getting loose where Stafford's trusting him and actually throwing the ball to him, there must be something there about this guy where he has to be deceptive, very good at football in some way. So these are two intriguing options to take towards the end of a draft where I think part of why they fall so much in addition to how they're they're both potentially buried on depth charts, is that they don't really seem like the profile. And I agree. I don't really think these are real deep threats necessarily. But I think what it indicates is that if Cephas ends up being a starting wide receiver on the Detroit Lions and that Perriman gets injured as he does every year 
and maybe Tyrell's just, he's not quite as good as he used to be. He's late 20s at this point. He hasn't been an above average wide receiver in several years now. And then we have rookie Amon Ross St. Brown. He's he's the same. He's slow on day three pick like Cephas. If Cephas ends up starting in two wide receiver sets, he might actually be usable and have some weeks where next, you know, he's entering your best ball lineup. So I think he makes for an intriguing late round pick where he might actually just be really good at football. And that if he was miscast as the situational deep threat as a rookie running a 4-7, what if we open up his route tree? Maybe he ends up being pretty decent in like a Jarvis Landry type role where you can sort of mask his athleticism because he's just a route running savant. So I think those are a couple interesting names. Neil, do you have any other names that you'd add to that? Or are these guys kind of just in this unique class of their own? I love it. I love it. I got I got no names for you. I, I have nothing past Quintus Cephas. <laughs> That's as far as I go. That's as far as I go. So you may not have any names for that. But before I get you out of here, you do have, you have one more name for me. Neil, this has been one of the most killer podcast debuts I can think of. I can't wait for everyone to listen to this. And what they're also going to remember you for, aside from all the knowledge that you've dropped on this episode, is that you have a pretty signature hot take that you've been dying to get off your chest. You actually, I mean, Neil DMs me on Twitter twice a day asking me when he can drop this hot take. He sent me at least five or six emails this week saying, hey, can I add this hot take in? It's getting annoying. We're finally going to let him get his hot take out there. Neil, give me a bold prediction for the 2021 season. 2021. Top eight running back, Chase Edmonds. The idea here is that Chase Edmonds, he he was really efficient out of the passing game last year. And kind of, he actually finishes like the RB22 on the season. And obviously a bunch of running backs got injured. You know where he's been taken right now? As the RB28, basically. That's about where he is ADP, ADP wise. This is despite the fact that Kenny and Drake is leaving. And he takes with him a thousand yards, 10 touchdowns. And you know who's coming in to replace Kenny and Drake? James Conner. <laughs> James Conner is washed. Chase Edmonds is going to get the most of these touches. He's at worst case, he's going to be the same player he was last year, which is a high-end pass catching back when he finished right outside the top 20 at the position. Best case scenario though, he's like a poor man's Austin Eckler, right? He's like this kind of feature back who slightly smaller, not really your prototypical back, but excels in the passing game and gets the rushing workload as well. So the, I see I see a path for Chase Edmonds, and I don't see him as that different from Travis Etienne. Man, that is that is hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yesterday when we recorded the Breakout Finder podcast, we talked a little bit about Eno Benjamin. So that'll hit the listeners the week after this podcast. So I, I talk about yeah. how Eno Benjamin actually has the best, possibly has the best all-purpose skill set in that backfield. I don't. I don't disagree with you. I think. Yeah. I think Chase Evans. I mean, it's a, it's a savvy play. I've warmed back up to him. We definitely need to bump him up in our rankings for redraft. So that's something that I think I want to update the draft kit with. Where just change a few of the assumptions there. 
make his actual fantasy points projection a little bit more stable because I do think his role is pretty stable with the potential to grow. Yeah, Austin Eckler is an interesting one where 10 to 12 carries a game, five, six targets. And that next, you know, that's a pretty fruitful role for fantasy. Yeah, and it's like, I just see Chase Edmonds as having more upside than someone like taking in a similar range like Mike Davis. Like, I just think Chase Edmonds has a lot more upside than Mike Davis, where we kind of saw Mike Davis's ceiling last year as like the lead back. It Sure, he had a few weeks where it's going to be clearly tailed off. We haven't seen what Chase Edmonds is capable of yet. And the, and the coaching staff is, who, who's been with Chase Edmonds for a couple of years. They've kind of, com- they're kind of committing to him here. Like, I don't, I don't we'll see. James Conner hits, James Conner hits, but I, I'm betting that he won't. I saw him last year. <laughs> I think, I think, I think we can, we can end it there because we're already at two hours, so. All right, sounds good. That was fun. I think that's a hard day's work. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm tired. How do you feel now? <laughs> oh, it's all done. I'm sweaty. I have like, <laughs> I feel like it, we had a good dynamic. I'm actually really glad we met yesterday because I feel like it helped me know how to better tee you up. Because I, I talk about it all the time on podcasts is that you want to tee up the guest and that if you bring somebody on, you owe it to that guest to actually play to their strengths. And that if you've done a lot of research that I want to cater to the research you've done. And Matt always instilled that in me. He was like, the best guest is the one that talks a lot more than you do. And I feel like we had a good dynamic there. So I thought it went well. I'm excited for people to listen. This was the one of those burly show sheets, but we, we planned it out well. I feel like meeting yesterday and it was all content that we knew really well and kind of knew what to go with it. So it's a, it's a good final product. I'm excited. It's going to take me a while to chop this one up with our, our bathroom breaks and stuff, but it'll be good.